There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows. Handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Arminia Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. And I'm Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. And, of course, I'm Bill Roden, and I'm coming to you this week from sunny and sweltering Las Vegas, Nevada. They, this is the home of heat, the original home of heat. Uh, we've got another great show for you today. Uh, college Hoops is over. Uh, we've got a new national champion, Villanova. Now we can turn our attention to real basketball, the NBA. And we're, we're graced and blessed uh, to be talking with Mark Spears, who's the undefeated senior NBA writer who uh, I don't know if you follow his work but Mark has Mark continues for the last two years to turn out tremendous work so he's going to talk to us about uh, the NBA season so far the playoffs coming up uh, draft predictions and later in the show we're going to be talking to Martenzie Johnson who's undefeated researcher uh, the undefeated researcher and he's going to break down the <laughs> financial aid scandal at Howard University and what's happening with student protests at Howard. Uh, but first, uh, I want um, you know myself and uh, the fellows to look at uh, the major sports news from last week, and I want each of you guys to talk about what do you think we're going to be talking about uh, next week. Uh, well, I'm definitely going to be talking about who is making the playoffs in the Western Conference right now. So you have the Jazz, who are ranked fourth, that are 45 and 33, and then you have the Clippers that are ranked 10th that are 42 and 36. That's three games that separates them. Who's going to make it? That's all I want to know. Well, next week, I'm really going to think we're going to be talking about LeBron and how he's fully supportive of female NBA coaches. Um, this is a subject that has been brought up, but he's talking about it, so I know everyone's going to start talking about it, especially since Becky Hammond was up for the position of the San Antonio Spurs assistant. Hmm. Okay. Um, I definitely think we're going to be talking about whether the Toronto Raptors are actually for real this year. I know this is a conversation that comes up um, throughout different years, but I think this year might actually be the year that they actually get over the hump. They can actually actually defeat LeBron in the Eastern Conference final, in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year, wherever they might play them. So I think this is the year we're going to be talking about Toronto actually being for real. Oh, great! Well, that's a perfect segue. Uh, into our, our guest this afternoon is the great Mark Spears, who's the uh, undefeated senior NBA writer. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show, my man. Thanks again for coming on. Well, I went, you know, I went to University of D.C. for a year. That's the HBCU. We got we got to give them some love too, right? They, do they count? Uh, yeah, they count. Um, if you tell uh, us they count, they count. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we get beat up on man. They're, they're HBCU too, so. I didn't graduate from there, but I, I went there for a year. 
That's okay. That matters. Listen, man, it's all, it's the thought that counts. You, you did, you did a year. You ducked on people for a year. Cause you played ball there, right? Uh, yeah, I played ball, was on scholarship and they weren't offering my classes my final two years. So I left. There you go. And then, you know, and look, and here you are. So it, all, it all worked out. It all work. It all works out, brother. Uh, hey, hey, so Mark, no, you, you, you cover the NBA, but you are also a man of wide ranging interest and passions what what do you think that uh what do you think people are going to be talking about next week well i think the probably with the playoffs just about to start the western conference rates from basically four to ten you know this is certainly it's typical coming playoff time that you got you know some teams that come down to the last day as far as figuring out whether they're going to make the playoffs or not but never have I seen, and Bill, you've been around longer than me, so you could tell me when you last seen it, where four through ten or four through nine, that their situation can be decided on the last day. So I've never seen anything like that. I think it's going to make the last week of the regular season, which is usually boring, quite interesting. And then also keep an eye on the Sixers. Yeah. control their destiny as far as the third seed in the Eastern Conference. If the Sixers win at home tomorrow night against the Cleveland Cavaliers and go on to win their last four games or or last three games, they'll be the third seed. As crazy as that might sound, they'd be a third seed. And basically, as the third seed would have the easiest road to the Eastern Conference Finals because – Toronto and Cleveland would probably would play each other in the, likely in the second round, and Sixers would have to play either an injury-depleted Boston team or Miami, Milwaukee, or Washington. So right now, uh, the game that the Sixers have tomorrow is probably the biggest game they had since they were in the playoffs in 2012. So I'm keeping an eye on the Sixers who have that mammoth game on Friday against LeBron in Philly. What a great ticket that would be. And if they could win out, they're the third seed. That's interesting that you say that, Mark. I kind of got a question about the 76ers now that you mentioned them. Do you really think they could be a potential finals? They could make a potential finals run. You said they had the easiest. They would, If they would maintain a three seed, they would have the easiest road to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Do you feel whoever they play, whether that's Toronto or Cleveland, do you feel like they are a legitimate? They have a legitimate chance to get to the finals, even with them being so young. They they got a chance. I, would, I don't know. Legitimate might be strong, but they certainly have a chance. Um, you know, you got to see how healthy MB is and how that right. you know facial fracture affects him. Uh, Sixers have some other injury woes as well, but they're like you know. The, you, you guys wouldn't understand this reference. They're like the fish that save Pittsburgh. You know, they're just uh, – the understand that. They're just this ragtag team with some young talent, and you got to go see that movie for y'all youngsters. But uh, You got to uh, see the movie. Who's the, star, who's the star of the movie? Julius Irving, better known as Dr. <laughs> Jack, was the star of the movie. He did a good job. That's great. Yeah. did a good yeah. job. But they uh, – What was the name of the movie? What was the name of the movie? The the fish that saved Pittsburgh. The fish that saved Pittsburgh. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's, yeah. it's um, it's a it's a comedy. It's quite interesting, but it was it was a good movie. But 
basically the, the Sixers would have no pressure, uh, whether it's Toronto or Cleveland. Yeah, the, the odds would be against the Sixers, but when you got Embiid, when you got a guy that makes everybody better and Ben Simmons, you got youth, athleticism, a deep bench, veterans. They're just like they're that team you really don't want to see in the playoffs, and um, I'm very curious to see how it breaks down. Do you so, think, do you think Toronto? I mean, we we talked a lot about uh, you know Philadelphia, but do, what do you think about Toronto? I mean, everybody's saying this is their year, but yeah. I, I wonder if that window is closed because now it looks like Philadelphia's rising. Could 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 you know could could they miss their opportunity? Could they miss their window? Well, but that's that's the thing. Like Toronto's really going to be watching that game tomorrow because they'll probably learn who their second round fate is. So if, if Philly wins and wins out, then you got basically Cleveland and Toronto beating up on each other in the second round, you know. And and so Toronto's path, no matter what, is going to be tough. That being said, you know Demar Derozan is All Star caliber player, MVP player. Uh, not all-star caliber, MVP caliber player. Um, you know, Kyle being Kyle, he's an all-star. And then they just got a great supporting cast. Um, this is the best team Toronto's ever had. This is the best chance that they've had. I- I've talked to in detail to Kyle Lowry and-, and DeRozan over the last year about what this year could be. But they know that you got to beat LeBron James four times. Four times in a playoff where there's no days off, I mean, where there's several days mm. off in between. That's a hard thing to do. And um, so it's really, really hard for me to bet against LeBron, but this is Toronto's best chance to do it. I think if, if, if this would be the year for them to do it, and strictly because I feel like Toronto has made some changes, and you can you can probably attest this, uh, Mark. I thought they made some changes around the way they play. They're not – as ISO heavy as they've been in past years with DeRozan and Lowry. And I feel like that's taken some pressure not only off DeRozan, but off of Lowry, who's had his struggles in the playoffs in recent years. And I think with the, with the, um, with the addition of these key players like Van Fleet and with Valanciunas playing well and all these other players who come off the bench, I think it's given less pressure off of Lowry. And I also think LeBron's team this year, might be the worst it's been in recent years. And so with the Raptors becoming better and Cleveland becoming substantially worse in my eyes, I think the Raptors could potentially do something to finally get past LeBron this year. But, but see, Rick, listen, listen, listen to your hesitation. <laughs> yeah, because it's, well, it's LeBron. If it goes seven and Toronto wins all four games at home, they, they make it through. But you got to remember, this is like a second-round opponent. Like, Toronto has to win that series that they played Cleveland. Can you honestly can you honestly tell me, Donovan, that LeBron James won't steal one game in Toronto? Well, I'm telling this is what I'm telling you guys. All factors apply to the situation. Everything seems to be lining up for Toronto to take Except the fact that they can't win in Cleveland. That's a that's a given though. They can't win in Cleveland. Let me let me ask you I I have to give you a referee between you two, but Mark, let me let me ask you this. Uh, uh, switching to Boston, Kyrie Irving's hurt. He's he's going to be out for the playoffs. Uh, your your immediate thoughts? Does this a does this kill uh, Boston? But you know, Kyrie has always been injury prone throughout his career. He did have two years 
maybe two or three years where he miraculously was not hurt. I'm wondering if this is kind of, if you, I know he's a young guy, but if this is kind of it for him in terms of sort of this, this, uh, avoiding the injury bug that's haunted him throughout his career. I saw the Celtics play in the preseason when everybody was healthy and Gordon Hayward was there and they were awesome. I actually picked them to go to the finals prior to all the injuries. So I'm, I'm not worried about him for next season. Just, it's just golly. This, this year of injuries for the NBA has been unbelievable. Un- unbelievable. Yeah. I've yeah. never seen anything like this. So I certainly wish him the best. But the one thing to keep in mind about Boston is they, they may be the best defensive team in the league. They're going to slow it down. They're going to make it ugly. They're going to turn it into a bar fight. You know, the odds are certainly against them. The pressure is off. And whoever they play, you better get your knuckles up because they, they're going to, you know, be physical. They're going to defend. They're going to make every shot tough. And they're going to try to beat you 82-78, and they're just fine with that. I had a quick question. I was wondering, is there any news on LeBron's upcoming free agency? I think the playoff uh, will help answer that question a little more. It's, it's probably too early to tell. I, I would be shocked if he totally knows what what he's going to do, especially with the change in landscape of injuries and how the NBA is. And, you know, obviously you hear his rumors about Houston, and who knows, maybe Philadelphia can be more intriguing. Another thing to keep an eye on is that Cleveland has a high draft pick, so. What if they get a lottery pick? What if they get a top five pick and end up, you know, getting one of the college's top players? That could make it more intriguing to stay. Uh, I actually think the trade perhaps helped Cleveland's chances better than it hurt it. So it, it's just, there's too many unknowns right now, I think, to really make a, not, not that he's telling me anything, because he's not, but to make any kind of sound projection on what's next. Uh, kind of switching gears a little bit. I know you mentioned uh, this upcoming draft, but I kind of wanted to, to backtrack to last year's draft. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that this is one of the best draft class since the uh, 03 or maybe even the 96 draft, you know, with uh, Jason Tatum in Boston, uh, Ben Simmons, uh, even though he wasn't drafted last year, but he's still, you know, a rookie, um, Lori Markinen, um, Donovan Mitchell. Uh, I kind of wanted to know what you thought about the possibility of awarding a co-rookie of the year on this year because of the play of Ben Simmons and Donovan Mitchell. <clears throat> I, I don't, I don't really like that. It's, unless it just happens to tie even, I, I, I'm not big on co. <laughs> Somebody got to win. I mean, you know, this ain't the millennial award where everybody got to have to be happy and hold hands and buy on certificate of the <laughs> of participation and. You know, get smoothies and co- goes home happy. You know what I mean. <laughs> it's, it's a rookie of the year award. You pick one person, and and you know, I remember in 2003, Carmelo Anthony had an amazing year. He he went to the playoffs. LeBron James didn't go to the playoffs. He mm-hmm. probably had a better season than LeBron. Obviously, LeBron super talented and had a lot more hype behind him, and he won. And so, you know, is is a very tightly contested rookie of the year candidacy. But if if Ben Simmons can lead the Sixers to the third seed in the playoffs, which he has the 
ability to do. Uh, I think it, it with all real, all due respect to Donovan Mitchell, who I love, it, it'd be hard not to give it to Ben. And do you okay. feel like players who've been in um, the league a year deserve to be eligible for Rookie of the Year award? Oh, Especially come on now, been been there. I'm just asking the question. I was asking the question. Do you <laughs> yeah, feel like those players deserve odd. to be eligible for the award? Yeah, it's, I understand what you're saying. It's odd. I mean, it, he was hurt. He didn't play. So, in essence, it's, you know, it's like a redshirt freshman. You know what I mean? Thank you. Uh, you but even redshirt gained an advantage, though. You know what I mean? From a tra- yeah, uh, traditional yeah. true freshman. Well, you don't gain an advantage when you're hurt. Can't play. I mean, so, I mean, what advantage he play get when he didn't play? I mean, you could be watching, you could watch film, you get different, you study in the game, you're good learning different aspects of the game. Being in the environment, in the atmosphere by itself, it could be an advantage to somebody who wasn't there before. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Hey, hey. Hey, Mark, before we let you go, uh, let, let me just ask you one question. This is sort of off the court. Um, uh, what do you think about uh, Mark, Matt Barnes, uh, who um, led a protest rally for uh, Stephon Clark, the young, unarmed, uh, you know, black man who was shot 22 times by police? Well, what, what did you think uh, uh, about the response from the Kings? And, you know, a lot some players wore shirts that read accountability. Your, your take on on, uh, on, uh, on on Matt Barnes? I mean, Matt Barnes is uh, one of the most interesting NBA players I ever met. I remember as a rookie going to summer league that year in Salt Lake City, and his the trainer for Cleveland at that time, because I believe Matt didn't get drafted or was drafted late in the second round, and he was in camp with Cleveland. Uh, Mac Benton, their their bus was overfilled with players, so he asked Matt to ride with me to a summer league game. So Matt kind of looked at him crazy and just jumped in my, my rental car with me, and we, we drove there together and had a lot in common. Matt Matt's dad and my dad actually went to the same – I mean, I'm sorry, myself and Matt's dad actually went to the same high school. Wow. Uh, Andrew Hill High School in San Jose. And huh. because of – Things going on in Eastside San Jose um, that were a little bit too much. I'll just leave it at that. Urban problems, as you mm. could say. Uh, right. Matt's father and the family, you know, departed to Sacramento and he moved there. Matt was there, I think, by the time he was like eight, nine, ten years old. So, I mean, Sacramento was near and dear to his heart. He was basically raised there. The area in which Clark was. Um, basically uh, shot and killed as the same area where he used to play pickup ball at Sack High, and, you know, at uh, the Salvation Army in, in the gym. And so it's uh, he's very close to people still there. Uh, Matt isn't scared of the street. He actually had one guy, and everybody from the hood knows that one guy in the neighborhood that kind of runs things. Matt wouldn't give me the guy's name, but he flew him to L.A., spent some time with him. Because one thing that Stevante Clark wants, which is Stephen Clark's brother, and Matt wants is it to be bigger than just getting justice for the cops. They want to stop black-on-black crime as well. And so Matt basically told me that he's, uh, even after the rally, there's a lot of work for him to to be done and, He's going to do 
everything he can to try to change that neighborhood, change, get more opportunities, get more education. And so, you know, Matt is a, a special person to me. He's one of them guys that could be a little intimidating to folks, but he's also one of those guys that I love where, you know, you don't, you don't have to agree with everything they say, but he's always going to keep it 100 with you. And he, he really cares about making sure his boys grow up in a, in a great environment, uh, giving the best to Sacramento and the community. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly kudos to Matt, kudos to the Sacramento Kings for standing up and also uh, owner Vivek Ranadive for standing up and not being scared to speak in behalf of the Clark family, despite the fact that for two games, he lost money on attendance and on concessions and whatnot because of the protests. So it's been kind of crazy up there in Sacramento, but hopefully there'll be some good that has come out of all this uh, nightmare. Our guest has been the great uh, Mark Spears, a senior NBA writer for the Undefeated, a uh, man of many talents. He dunks on people. <laughs> and, and, or you and, and he did. <laughs> well, yeah, well, whatever, man. Let's, you know, let's keep the narrative going, you know. All uh, right. Last thing before we let you go, Mark. Who do you think is hey, going to be Hey, one thing I want to tell you real quick, uh, Mr. Roden, that I love about you is anytime you give me an introduction or uh, a, a goodbye, man, I, I feel like I'm getting a shout-out from a jazz band leader, man, so I really enjoy it. <laughs> who, do you think, who do you think we're going to be talking about in June, man, the East versus West in the NBA? Let's leave, leave us with a prediction. Uh, I hate to say it, but I think you're going to get a repeat. No, wow. Yeah. You got to remember uh, that I think Golden State will be fine, and they'll figure it out, and they can't wait yep. to play Houston after all the trash talking and pound chessing that they've done. And, uh, you know, keep in mind this new territory for the Rockets, although James Harden's having an amazing season. It'll be new territory for uh, Chris Paul, um, who sure would – be very emotional if he gets to the finals or just gets to the conference finals. But even with all of Cleveland's problems, you got LeBron James rested with two or three days off in between games, playing the best basketball of his career. Mm. I just find it hard well, that anybody beat him four times. Uh, well, there you have it. That, that's a guarantee. We're going to have Houston and Toronto. <laughs> Yeah, I ain't got. Hey, I'm in the city, so I have I have no problem spending time in Toronto. Trust as a, as a, as a, hey, hey, Mark, that that that's a segment for for uh, another time. How how sports writers root for things other than the game, the city, <laughs> the restaurant, deadline. Yeah, they got a restaurant uh, called One in Toronto that has a reservation waiting on me. So, uh, all right. Hey, Mark, man, you're the best, man. Thank, thanks so much. Uh, you know the fellas always appreciate talking to you. So best of luck, and uh, I'll definitely see you along the trail. All right, go UDC Firebirds. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great Mark Spears. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the student protests at Howard University. Stay tuned.
you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm on the phone with my co-host, Isaiah Smalls, from Morehouse College. What's up, y'all? Mania Shabazz from Gramley State University. Hello, everyone. And Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T. The best HBCU in the country, you already know. What's good, people? Our lovely producer, Aaron Matthewson, will also be joining us for this segment. Two weeks ago, reports of financial mismanagement at Howard University went viral among the school's current students, alumni, uh, and major media outlets. Uh, in a nutshell, this is the deal. The allegations that financial aid funds were stolen. The university knew about it, but didn't share the information with students until recently. And now some students and faculty are demanding changes from the university leadership. Martizzi Johnson, senior researcher at the Undefeated, reported on the situation for the site. And he's on the line to help us make sense of everything. Uh, welcome to the show, Martinzi. No, thank you for having me. So let, let, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Martinzi, just lay this out for us. Um, first, let's start with the financial aid scandal. What exactly happened? And, and, and what is the uh, situation with Tyrone Hankerson, Jr.? So from my understanding, um, a couple of years ago, the president of the university, uh, it came to his attention that there might have been some misappropriation of funds in the financial aid office. So they did, I believe, what was a one- or two-year investigation and found out sometime last year or in late 2016 that they like what they assumed that there was a misappropriation of funds as far as people getting uh, tuition reimbursement and also getting need based funds, which are targeted towards uh, underserved, underrepresented students at Howard. So they did that investigation, but the only problem was, and this is the problem that uh, Howard students said reoccurs in the, uh, at the university, not in just this instance, is that they didn't tell anyone that it happened. They kind of investigated. Uh, sent some findings to the Department of Education and then kind of wiped their hands of it and went about their business. So I believe the 27th of March is when the Medium Post came out that uh, a few employees of the financial aid office had done what was reported by the school a couple of days later was that they were basically double dipping in the funds for uh, need-based financial aid and then the tuition reimbursement. So as far as what is in that medium post that was eventually taken down by lawyers for Tyrone is that we don't know for sure how accurate those reports are. No one outside of that medium post had kind of corroborated what was in that. Uh, but obviously the jokes were flying after because Tyrone was someone who was very flashy online. So you look at him and you look at what he allegedly stole and you kind of put two and two together and say, Yes, someone stole four hundred thousand dollars. When when he spoke with Roland Martin uh, a couple of days later, he kind of laid out how that was four hundred thousand dollars over seven years, including the law school, which is sixty thousand dollars a year. So, in essence, it might actually add up. Um, and he said he wasn't one of the six people that were fired. So, as of right now, we're still not a hundred percent sure who did what, but we do know that six people were fired. Hi, um, I kind of wanted to also talk about, you know, the protest that's going on. So what are the major demands of the student protesters and do you think they're reasonable? For sure. So there's a misconception and the students really kind of hammered that home uh, with multiple people that I spoke with on Howard's campus yesterday. So a lot of people think that the protests 
or the list of demands came after the median post about what students or employees of the financial aid office did. What actually happened was the list of demands came out on March 25th. The median post came out on the 27th. And then they took over the building, I believe, on the 29th. So they had these issues with Howard before, but the tipping point was that there was a possibility that over a million dollars, maybe even more, were stolen, practically stolen from students who you you hear these stories about them being $20,000 in debt and not being able to register for classes and stuff like that. So in that original list of demands, they wanted – what they refer to as adequate housing for certain students. So anyone under 21 is a freshman or sophomore. They wanted them to have the ability to, to live on campus. Uh, they wanted to freeze tuition costs, which right now are over $24,000 a year. Uh, they wanted to develop efforts to prevent sexual assault on campus. As some of you, I, I assume, know right now, um, the University of How- or Howard University is being sued by at least five or six women for how they've handled sexual assault cases in the past. Uh, so that's added to the list. Also, uh, creating a grievance system for faculty, hiring more mental health counselors, combating food insecurity, not just for students at the university, but around the entire campus uh, in the communities outside of the university, allowing student involvement in policymaking, um, and then the last two are kind of the bigger, two biggest issues is the disarming of Howard University Police Department uh, officers and the immediate resignation of the president and I believe the executive committee of the board of trustees. Now, as far as wow. are these reasonable requests, um, I think a handful of them are the ones, and I think in the, in the Atlantic article that came out a couple of days ago kind of pinpointed this as far as getting students involved on like policy decision making. In theory, yes, that might be a good idea, but in practice, it will be if everyone in America voted on every single policy decision, you know, that came up in every single city and every single state, you would get bogged down with that bureaucracy. So I don't know if that is necessarily a good idea, but they should have input on major decisions. But I think everything else, uh, I mean, the disarmament of police, um, someone I heard talking about this on campus yesterday was in the event of an active shooter, you would probably want HUPD to have firearms, so I'm not sure right. how possible right. that is. And, and then also the last, the biggest thing I think is uh, obviously the resignation of the president and the executive committee. Um, I'm not on campus every day. I'm not a student there, so I can't say whether or not that's reasonable or not. The school I went to for graduate school, the University of Missouri, uh, the football team and the students there kind of forced the president of not the university, but the university system to resign. So it's it's been done before, and if the faculty have zero confidence in the president, which they don't seem to, uh, since they're voting on a no-confidence vote right now, um, and that the students appear to be fed up with him as well, that may be all we need to know about whether it's a good idea for him to stand up. Many of the students that I talked to there were basically saying that the element of distrust between the students and the administration was re- was really the key thing and why tensions have been so risen there on campus. And so in your story, you mentioned that Board of Trustees members didn't appear to trust student demands seriously at first. How do you think the, uh, the students got their attention? Do you think they finally got their attention with these protests? I think a lot of executive leadership type people don't necessarily want to listen to a bunch of 20 and 21-year-olds. But... I think after they a while, they, they right, right. So for them, it's it's and and I don't, you know, 
I don't want to get into capitalism or not, whether it's a good idea to listen to students or not, or just take their money. But I will say that after a while, I think the students proved to them that, hey, we thought long and hard about this. This isn't something that is just a reaction to the big news story from last week about the financial aid office. And we're really passionate about this. And we really and thought about this. And something they wanted to make clear, too, was that it's not just about President Frederick. Like, there are serious issues on campus, and we've seen in the news regarding the sexual assault and how uh, those allegations were handled, um, how the university has refused to be transparent in issues as we've seen with the financial aid office, and then just and then tuition increasing as well. From from my understanding, tuition in 2006 or in 2008 was about six thousand dollars a year or six thousand a semester, which would either be six to twelve thousand dollars a year. Now it's double that. Right. So they have reason to be upset. And I think after meeting with the trustees, because the trustees essentially from there, from how the students explained it, had no idea what was going on campus. And as far as the sexual assault allegations, I find that hard to believe because of the lawsuit. But for every other issue, there's there's reason to believe they didn't know or they didn't care. And that's what I asked one of the students was, do you think that they cared or not? And they really couldn't answer the question. So but. Back to your question, I think after a while they realized that, hey, these are major concerns of these students. And if you're meeting with someone six to eight hours a day for four or five straight days, I think after a while you do have to take what they're saying seriously or you wouldn't be there. Hi, Martin Z. Uh, I read a piece by Panama Jackson of uh, Very Smart Brothers about kind of why this all matters and the, the effects that this could have on other HBCUs and stuff like that. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you that, pose that same question to you. Um, what are all the ramifications of this? Um, and do you think this will have a trickle down effect on future students who attend uh, HBCUs? I mean, you see that with protests a lot where one thing happens and that kind of emboldens other people to do it as well, uh, because this problem isn't unique to Howard by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and some of the students pointed it out, like if, if students at Tuskegee have this problem or uh, students at Spelman have these types of problems. They've actually heard from people at these schools and saying, we support you because we're having these issues as well. So I do think that if the demands are met in which from yesterday, from that, from what the students said, seven of the nine have conditionally been agreed to. It's just the last two, which is the, the police and the, the resignations part. They're going to get a majority, if not all, of what they want. And I think that would then signal to other students that you too can have a voice in the conversation of how your university is ran. And that's the main sticking point for these Howard students is they don't really care about who the president is or what the, that specific person does. They want to be a part of the conversation. They want to be able to dictate how, what the future of this specific university, in this case, Howard, what the future of that university is. And so I think students at other schools will take that and say, hey, we're not just going to sit here and let every, basically the grown-ups decide all the rules, all the regulation, everything else. We want to be a part of that as well. We want to seat at the table, essentially. And I, so I, yeah. I do think we've, we've seen this before in, in non-school settings where, uh, just like Black Lives Matter, that emboldened a lot of people to say, finally, no, I won't take this anymore. Or, or you see it with like the Me Too movement where one person speaks out and then an avalanche of people speak out. And now more and more powerful men are being held accountable for what they've done in the past. 
I definitely agree because earlier. the Grandmother State University, you know, in 2017, actually four different employees, they didn't pass the audit because $164,000 were misused at Grandma. So I don't think that this situation is definitely just unique to just Howard. But I also had another question. Um, how popular is the protest among students at the school? I know you've been up there a couple of times. And, um, you know, like as far as like upper class and lower class students or international students, how do, is there a lot of participation? So if you compare it to the past protests, the major ones at least, at Howard from 1968 and 1989, the participation is down a little bit. From my understanding, in 68, there were about 2,000 students who took over the A building or administration building. And then in 1989, I think it was similar to that number as well. From what the students told me, is at any given time, there were about 400 people in there right now. Um, that isn't to say that it's less popular, but that might just mean, you know, everyone doesn't want to be involved in that sense of overtaking the building. They still might support the cause. Um, walking around campus, it seemed like business as usual. I was there for probably about four or five hours um, from about 10 to 2 or 10 to 3. It, it seemed like a, just a regular day for everyone else, and that might be from fatigue. That might just be that those people just were headed to class and then were going to head back to the A building afterwards. I'm not sure, but it does appear that the student government fully supports what HU Resist is doing. Um, there's another organization, I, I think it's called H United or something like that. So that's for like different political backgrounds among the students. They support them as well. So, but it seems like there's a, a, a strong contingent of people who do support this, but it's not necessarily those people who are going to be staying in the building uh, for what is now eight days. I want to ask a question quickly. Um, like like everybody's mm -hmm. been mentioning, this isn't a situation that's, you know, just strictly, you know, applies to Howard. Even at A&T, we've had recently um, a woman in our offices embezzled $400,000 from North Carolina A&T. And so, but I want to ask you this question. Do you think the way that Howard handled this entire situation is also a big reason for why students are so up in arms and in these protests? Because, like, with A&T, that's feel like they handled the situation differently by letting students know, letting faculty know, letting alumni know that this did happen in a pretty quick time, a pretty quick time manner. Um, do you feel like Howard, you know, messed up in that regard and not being as, trans as transparent with their students as they should be? Yeah, the the main concern, and it doesn't just apply to this one instance, this is long held among students, even past the generation that we're dealing with now, is the idea that Howard chose to be reactive rather than proactive, right? So they could have taken what they found out about the embezzlement. They could have taken what they knew about the sexual assaults on campus. They could have taken what they knew about the quality of the buildings that the students are living in. They could have taken what they knew about students not being able to afford to attend the university or continue their studies, and they could have done something about it then. Well, basically what they waited to do was what one of the students told me was, you know, wait until the students took to Twitter and Instagram and complained about it. Uh, because the the story came out on the 27th, like I said, about the financial aid office, and then there was an immediate uh, response from the president. And then that, that response wasn't as well received as they thought it was, so then he sent out another release. And then it took them, I want to say, a good four or five days before they even responded point by point 
to the list of demands from HU Resist, which I said came out on the 25th, which I believe was a Sunday. So they, they're playing catch-up, which is probably the worst position you want to be in because now you're just reacting to what people's concerns are rather than reaching out in the beginning and saying, hey, we heard about this. Hey, we know you're struggling with this. We want to collaborate and come, to, you know, work together to come to a, a positive uh, conclusion. So I, that's, I think, was their number one mistake. But also you do have to take into account that, you know, this is a very large university and day-to-day do they have the time to even, you know, did they have the time to even think about these types of things and, and implement any changes or have these conversations? I don't know because, again, I'm not there. But I do think, like you said, the number one mistake for them was not getting ahead of this when they could have uh, because you wouldn't have had – you would have still had the list of demands had the financial aid story not come out. But if you had told the university beforehand that you knew about it and you were taking steps to react to it, or uh, then the students would have taken over the building because that, like I said, was kind of the final straw for them. The story came out and they said, okay, we've had enough. Now we're going into action. Um, so going forward for any university, not just Howard and not even just HBCUs, I think these universities need to realize that these students have voices too, and they're going to be heard one way or another. Uh, either you can meet them at the table, or in case of Howard, they'll take over an administration building for over a week. Hey, Martinzi, this is Aaron. Um, I wondered if you had a sense of what all this means for Frederick. Um, Tyrone Hankerson Jr. went on, he spoke to Roland Martin and basically said that this is a smear campaign against Frederick. Um, I know there was this, the vote of a vote of no confidence against him by a bunch of faculty members. But I've also heard that this it's the student body is very divided. Like it sounds like some of the lower classmen are up in arms and the upperclassmen alumni loosely are more supportive of Frederick. It seems like the protest is actually affecting um, the functioning of the university. It, it sounds like uh, students can't send out transcripts or anything else that the A building um, is responsible for. Um, what do you think it all means? Um, I mean, in, in any kind of protest environment, everyone's not going to 100% agree with one another. So that's not all that surprising to me that some people might want some of these changes, but not necessarily for Frederick to be canned. Um, and, and excuse me, Aaron, what, what was the main part of the question? I forgot it while trying to formulate it. Oh, no, I was just wondering, what, it, what, it, what do you think it means for Frederick? Do you think he's going to get canned, or do you think it's just what happens when you're a president? Yeah, so I think at any given time, at any school, enough people are going to be fed up with whoever's running the university where they're going to want them to resign. Not every instance do you have it where it's basically a demand uh, from a group of people who are occupying a building. Um, When I first heard about the embezzlement stuff and the statement that he put out after it and that he knew about it and didn't say anything, and that they basically admitted that there was a lot of money stolen, and they won't give an amount, uh, and so everyone's working off of $1 million, which really, in the grand scheme of things, isn't a lot of money compared to what their endowment is. But the fact that he knew about it and they didn't feel the need to let any of the students know, especially for these students who you see these stories, like the Washington Post, I believe it was a year ago or two years ago, did a first part and a second part story about a girl who – 
you know, like I said in the beginning, was like ten thousand dollars in debt from the school and wasn't able to live in the dorms. She got kicked out of the dorms. Uh, she had to basically live in her friends' living rooms for a couple semesters. And then by the time she got to her senior year, the only way she was she, only way she was able to graduate was a twenty thousand dollar gift from a well-off alumni of uh, I think Morehouse. Um, so with all of that. And with the faculty voting and no confidence on him, it's going to be hard for him to keep his job, but the board of trustees are behind him, um, and the alumni association is behind him, and and the alumni association are the people who, you know, in theory are going to keep the university alive by how much money they give. So it's kind of hard to tell right now. In the beginning, I would have said, yeah, definitely he's out of here, but it seems to be a little more complex than that. And the fact that, you know, eight days have gone by and what the students are saying, the main sticking point outside of the police situation is that the board of trustees aren't listening or aren't willing to bend on keeping him. Um, And one of the students let me know that without saying that he's not going to resign, he basically said we're working on procedures to be able to make the president's office and the president more transparent. So that sounded to me like he was saying, we'll probably fold on that. We just want him to be more accountable going forward. So I think he will survive this, but in the future, his day-to-day responsibilities are going to change as far as, you know, what he's letting the campus know and what he's telling the students. Hey, Martinzi, I know, I know you got to run, but I just had a question uh, about, um, you know, we, we talked about this not being peculiar to HBCUs, uh, but is there something about this? You know, you've got a lot of presidents at HBCUs have been there for a long time. Is there something about this that underlines uh, 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 an issue at HBCUs, or something that has to be rectified or addressed? Um, this is coming from someone who didn't attend the HBCU. I mean, you can kind of stretch this out to all colleges, but specifically for, for what you're asking, I think the main thing um, is money, right? Students can't afford to go to school. If tuition is doubled in 10 years, what will it be like in another 10 years, right? So Frederick, from my understanding, when he got to HU, his main thing was not having the school have to spend on tuition to succeed as a university. Um, So they need not just Howard, but all these schools, whether they're in good financial shape right now, you know, the price of education or post-secondary education is just going to continue to climb. Like, it's not going to go down. So I think that they all need to start thinking now, how are we going to make Campus One affordable? And then this idea of a safe place, not specific safe space, but like a safe place for students as far as like the, the sexual assault problems and then mental health and just making the quality of life for students. They shouldn't have to worry about, you know, when they're in the middle of exams about whether or not they can afford to go to school the next semester or do they have enough credits to graduate and do they have the money before the credits? You know, so I think that large picture, these universities where, you know, state funds and federal funds are drying up and they have to, they have to get this money from somewhere. And after a while, you can only ask for so much from black families where historically we have less money, less wealth than white families. And if a majority of your entire student population are coming from these types of families, eventually they're going to have to say, I can't afford an HBCU, I'll go elsewhere. And then we're at a hundred or roughly a hundred HBCUs right now. 
in 20 years, will it be half of that? It's hard to tell, but they need to find a way to improve that quality of life for these students so that these HBCUs can last for another 100 years. Our guest is Mackenzie Johnson. He's the undefeated researcher who's been breaking down the situation at Howard University. Uh, Mackenzie, before we let you go, where did you go to undergrad? I went to the University of Wisconsin. So <laughs> the furthest okay. thing away from okay. HBCU, both <laughs> in distance and in campus life. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, listen, hey, Martinzi, thank you so much for joining us and, and sort of clarifying uh situation at Howard. I'm sure you're going to be uh on this as this thing unfolds and whether whether the president survives this or not, I think that's probably the, the next shoe to drop. Uh, but thank, thanks so much for coming on Breaking It Down. Uh, that's uh, Martinsey Johnson, who's a researcher at The Undefeated. Martinsey, thank you so much. No, thank you very much. That's all the time we have for the show today. But before we close out, I- I'd like to ask the fellows about the most inspiring protest you all have witnessed. Uh, Mania. It was a little after um, Trevor Martin had passed, and um, it was a walk from... Maryland to D.C., and I remember taking the train to Union Station. It was just, you know, thousands of people, and it was so inspiring, just the signs and what everyone would say. And even though, like, it was tiring because it was a really, really, really long walk, I feel like we definitely impacted a lot of people, and, you know, just seeing people join in as we walk, it means that we are really um, getting the message across. So firsthand, that was uh, the most inspiring one that I did. Um, I guess for me, the most inspiring protest would be when actually when I actually first came to North Carolina A and T, and I was a freshman here, and we were walking around the campus and almost went down to downtown Greensboro as a collective, as a school. It was probably like 500 to 800 kids out there, and we were walking, and basically it was in protest of the the Trump administration and um, his impending election that was coming up in November, and I, I remember that moment vividly because. It felt like it was the first protest I had ever participated in, and it was such a great feeling of being of unity between like me and my fellow classmates and my fellow students. And it was like it kind of everything that you hear about HBCU it kind of like culminated, you know, in that moment of just it was a moment of strength and unity that I feel like really bonded our campus for that semester. And it was a very very fun time. We were playing music. And basically, just making sure that we we uh, we're being heard and our voices were being shown. Mine, I mean, I'm I'm a big supporter of protests, but I'd say the most inspiring one actually happened when I was in third grade. Uh, one of my classmates actually told me that she was not inviting me to her birthday party because I was black, and she actually th- this actually got out into the classroom. And my my friend Benjamin Nathanson, who is still my friend to this day, said he would not go to her party unless I could go. And our parents ended up talking, and I ended up going to the party. But I just remember Ben stood up for me, and he kind of he made this very public stance, and I will never forget that. Oh wow! Hmm. What about you, Isaiah? Uh, I got to go back in, in history a little bit. I'm going to go with Muhammad Ali's protest uh, against going to the Vietnam War um, when he banded together with, you know, Kareem, Bill Russell, uh, Jim Brown, you know, just seeing those great figures in sports just come together to support a man who 
had been outspoken throughout his whole entire career. It was really, it's really beautiful to read about. Um, of course, I didn't see it with my own eyes, but you know, just having done research and just knowing the history around it, it was a very big deal. Yeah, my first protest uh, was when the day after Martin Luther King had been assassinated, and we left school. I was at school in Chicago, and uh, we marched down 95th Street. I remember that, and we were like throwing rocks at any car with white people who didn't have their lights on. And I thought back on, man, we could have gotten killed. But um, I guess, you know, God takes care of babies and food. But that was the very first protest that I was involved in uh, the day after Dr. King had been uh, assassinated. So there you have it. Uh, thanks again for listening to HBCU 468. Also. Shout out to Ben Nathanson, who uh, protected our, our producer, Aaron Matheson, and allowed her to go to the birthday party. That's all the time we have for today. If there's anything you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag RodenFellows. You can also contact us directly. I'm at WC Roden. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at St. Claude II. St. C-L-A-U-D-E-I-I. And you can find me at Donovan Dooley. You can find me at underscore miniature bass. And I'm at Erin on air. E-R-Y-N on air. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster, Brasby, and Kyrie Williams. Uh, get all of the HBCU 468 podcast as well as The Plug, The Right Time with Bamani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated uh, on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another scintillating HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everybody.